This morning we're going to look at Luke 18, verses 15 to 30, and I've titled this message, if you're taking notes, I've titled it Children's, Children and Rulers. So you can write that down if you want to. But before we begin, because we've been studying in Deuteronomy and not in Luke, let me give you a little context for this morning's study. Of course, Luke is one of the four Gospels that records the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Luke tracks for us much of Jesus' three-year ministry before he went to the cross. And yet we could break down those three years in Luke into two different parts before the cross. Luke chapters 4 to 9 cover a lot of what occurred for the first two and a half years of his ministry. You have to add Gospel of John into that as well for a full picture. But we get to chapter 9 and there's, there's a transition that occurs in Luke. One verse or two verses I want to pick out here. One is Luke 9, 23, 24. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's the first thing. Now that's a radical statement. That's a radical statement. Because it indicates a considerable choice must be made if someone is going to follow Christ. Considerable choice must be made. It requires someone to deny self, to give up our personal wants, our personal desires, and to take up our own cross of suffering. But then in a few verses later, we see a bit of a transition, a little bit different type. Luke 9:52 or 51 says, "When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. So not only does Jesus declare in chapter nine that a radical choice must be made, but there's also a radical shift in his ministry as he sets his face towards Jerusalem and what will end in the death on the cross. And that sets up chapters 10 to 19 in Luke as they move through the next 10 chapters. And those 10 chapters, chapters 10 to 19, cover the final six months of Jesus' Ministry as he meanders through the various villages in Israel. Jesus has shifted away from the part of his ministry where he's making himself known to the people, known to the larger communities. And now, these last six months, he's really focusing on teaching the people how to enter the kingdom of God and teaching his disciples what it truly means to follow him. He's taken things up a notch in his preaching and in his teaching. He wants them to know, using a modern term, more modern term, what it means to truly be a Christian. That's what these 10 chapters are about. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in chapter 18. By this point, we're just a couple weeks away from Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, just a couple of weeks 
So if you're able, if you would, please stand with me as I'm going to read Luke 18. We're going to start at verse 15. We're going to go through verse 30. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the, when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Verse 18, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life, eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, Follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, For this time, help us to open our hearts and minds to your word this morning. Teach us your ways and what it means to truly follow you from this text. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you're taking notes, this is the first time I've actually preached since we went to no notes. So I've had to learn to adjust and prepare you for taking notes. We're going to set this up in two parts. We're going to first look at children as an illustration of how to enter the kingdom of God. That's the first thing we're going to look at. Second, we're going to look at rulers as an illustration of how to enter the kingdom of God. And when we get to the second point, so we're consistent, we got three points. But remember the context that we talked about here that I've that we read before, or I walked through before we read our text. Jesus is teaching his followers about how to enter the kingdom of God and what it truly means to follow him or what it means to be a Christian. That's the context. That's what we're looking at here this morning. There's a difference between these two illustrations. And Luke puts them next to each other. We're going to get to that further in. Why does he put that together for a reason? Let's look first at children as an illustration or an illustration of entering the kingdom of God. Let me start by asking you a question. How many here have ever taken your kids to see Santa Claus? Not very many raised your hand. I know better. 
It's okay. I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot here. Somewhere in my mom's picture box, there's a picture from 1969 of my, when I was five years old, my sister was three, and we were sitting on Santa's lap. I've seen it, okay? Not, no judgment here. That's not why I asked. Why, but the question is, why did you do it? Why would you take your kid to see Santa Claus, put him on his lap? Again, not trying to put you on the spot here, but there's a correlation with our text that helps us to understand. Verse 15 says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. So the question is, why were Jewish parents bringing their children to see Jesus? Well, the Talmud, the Jewish holy book, instructed Jewish parents to bring their children to a rabbi to receive a blessing from the rabbi, a good man. So they did. That's why they did that. But the parents had modified the instruction a little bit. They added a little bit of superstition to this blessing, and they were bringing their children to Jesus. Well, again, we're only a few weeks from the cross. Where Jesus has been out there for a couple of years, and by now the religious leaders, they've really had it with Jesus. And yet here these parents are still bringing their children, even infants, to him. Well, maybe there's a correlation here with why parents bring their children to church at Christmas, but then they go see Santa Claus. It's, an, it's just, it's nothing more than it's an enjoyable few minutes with a jolly old man. I don't know why. That, I'm just saying that that could be a correlation there. But why, did the, but why did the disciples rebuke the parents for doing that? Why did they rebuke the parents? Were they aware of this false superstition? They wanted to, to correct the parents' theology? Is that what they were trying to do? I doubt it. I, I think it was for earthly reasons. When you're associated with a great man, the ability to control who has access to that great man makes you a very important person, right? Think about the chief of staff to the president of the United States. He's not an elected official. He didn't have to get his job from the people. He was appointed by the president, and yet he has tremendous power because he controls access to the president. And so it was with the disciples. They stood a little bit of a distance away from Jesus, and they're controlling who could go to him. Now, how do we know that? We know that because of verse 16. Jesus calls the disciples to himself. They're standing a little bit of a distance away with the crowd, and they're controlling who's coming and holding some back. That's what's happening here. And they saw Jesus, or the children, coming to Jesus, and they determined that's a waste of his time. And yet, in having spent now two years with Jesus, it was clear, clear that they did not share the heart of Jesus for the people. Even children. And Jesus says, he tells them, let the children come to me. They're not a waste of his time. And yet, of course, there's a deeper meaning here for the purpose of why let Jesus come. Jesus said, for to such belongs the kingdom of God in verse 16. Truly, verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
Notice then, under the kingdom, adults must become for to such or such as these and like a child. So what does it mean to come such as these? What's the meaning here? Notice also the age of the children. Verse 15 says they're babies, they're infants, very, very young. So that begs the question, why is he drawing this, po- this point out? Is Jesus talking about innocence as in that of a child? Is that what Jesus is g- getting at, this, this sweet, innocent infant, so cuddly and warm? John 3, 6 that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Romans 8.3, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus isn't talking about sweetness or innocence. These children were de- descendants of Adam. They weren't innocent from sin. For the last year, my wife has been watching a little baby girl who's now just turned a year old. And I'm going to tell you, in every way, this little baby girl, as I've gotten to interact with her for a year now, since she was just about after she was, well, after she was born, she has won over and stolen this old man's heart. I mean, it's like that Christmas show where the wizard has the heart of ice and the ice just kind of melts away. I mean, she has. It's, it's, it's wonderful. But I can tell you something. As sweet as this little girl is, <laughs> she is not innocent at one years old. I mean, I'll call over to her and I'll say, come give me a hug. And she will snub me. She'll look at me. She will snub me, walk away as easily and as expertly as any 14-year-old or 35-year-old. Not, no offense to 14-year-old or 35-year-old girls. That's not what I'm getting at. But she'll do that. She's not innocent even at one year old. The quality that Jesus points out is a child's total dependence on its caregiver, on its parent. That's what Jesus is getting at here. That one-year-old girl that we're watching is helpless to do anything. Little children cannot feed themselves, they cannot prepare their meals, they cannot provide for themselves, they cannot care for themselves, they cannot protect themselves. The only thing an infant can do is to cry out to their parent who must provide everything for them, including the teaching of how to grow and mature and do all these things. It's the same way to become a Christian or to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Psalm 131, three verses. It says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child that rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So here's the first summary point. The illustration of entering the kingdom of God as adults 
we must come to the Lord as if we were an infant. In total humility. No higher thoughts. Admitting no ability to gain salvation but to only cry out for mercy and to put our hope, our total hope and trust and dependence on God. And choose to remain there, close to God, dependent as a child, while enduring to the end. That's the point Jesus is trying to make here. To endure to the end, we must remain lowly and trust God, dependent on him for everything. Let's go to the rich, the rich young ruler. The, illust- the second point, the illustration of the ruler and the kingdom of God. I said there's three parts to this story. Part one is the interaction of the young the rich young ruler. Part two is the reaction from the crowd. Part three, Jesus tells us about rewards in heaven. We're going to start, obviously, with point one. That's 90% of what we're going to talk about, okay? Once I get through that, we hit point two, we're almost done. Luke tells us a ruler asked Jesus a question. But the question is, what kind of ruler is he? What can we glean and know about this, this gentleman? The interaction is actually listed in, all, in three of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. We already know that he's exceedingly rich. We know that from verse 23. Matthew tells us he's young. Matthew 19, 20, the young man said to him. So we can conclude from that, this rich young ruler is not a religious leader. He's not old enough to be yet. He's likely the son or an heir of a local or very wealthy landowner, probably a teenager, late teens, maybe early 20s, I don't know. He's a socialite. He's very popular. He has some control and influence over others. Maybe, maybe in some ways like some of the younger Hollywood or I don't know a lot of current pop culture of that age group right now. Tom Holland comes to my mind, the, the kid that plays Spider-Man. I don't think he's a kid so much anymore. Maybe not. No, my, my, my daughter's saying he's not a kid. But anyway, something like that. The young ruler asks a question. This young man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you think he asked the question? I think that with all of his wealth, all of his influence over people, their response, positive response to him, I think he still senses a great personal need, that there is something more to this life than what he already has, and he has a lot. There's a personal fear that he's lacking something that he's going to need for some point or at some time in the future. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't deny the existence of eternal life. He doesn't deny the existence of heaven. In fact, he's inquiring about it. The young man's not an atheist. He doesn't reject the afterlife. That we come to the end of our life and that's it. We're in the ground and that's it. He, de- 
He doesn't reject that. He fears it. He fears it and is therefore seeking something. Now, is there significance to his age? Is there a connection between his question and his age? I think there is. Because young, young people seem to be more willing to ask these types of questions, more so than people who are older and more set in their life. Young people tend to ask these types of questions. They have a very keen desire for joy and peace or the lack of it. They're often looking for something more, not so willing to accept the ways of the world. They're inherently curious. Now, we can beat up on Generation Z, and some of us do, but there was a time that every one of us was once like them, where we asked these questions. We asked a lot of questions, and for a lot of us, those questions brought many of us, to salvation. Statistics will say that 94% of Christians or people became, Christians were saved before they were 24 years old. Just a statistic. But 94% and 85% before they were 18. We were saved young because we asked questions like this young man did. So here's the first application. It's kind of a side application. Take time to talk to young people. When that opportunity comes and they ask questions, and I will tell you, I have a son. I never seem to connect to him at 7 o'clock at night. But at 11.30 at night, he's full of all kinds. He was full of all kinds of questions. And my wife is, who's the only one old enough to, old enough, I didn't say that, um, (laughs) who's, I'm a morning person, okay? <laughs> She's a night person. We probably missed about 20% of our marriage because one of us is still in bed. But anyways, when he was ready for, to answer all these questions at 1130 at night, she was there and she had great conversations, even spiritual conversations with him as a young man. So take time to talk with young people and answer their questions. Point them to Christ. Point them to the cross. The time you take matters for eternity. Don't dismiss it. Well, anyways, Jesus responds to the young man, and the first part of what he says is interesting. Here's Jesus, and look at this. Think about this. He says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Interesting statement coming from someone who's sinless. But I don't think the young man who's hearing the question here thinks that Jesus is sinless. So what's Jesus doing here? Why is he asking this question? It's a thought-provoking question, and that's the point. He's asking a counter-question to to provoke more thought. It's designed to elevate the young ruler's thoughts above himself and till up the ground or the soil in his heart where a more meaningful answer that's coming can take root. From the young ruler's perspective, he calls Jesus a good teacher. That's all he saw Jesus as, as a good person, but he saw him as an earthly person. 
as if anything could be good, which means the young man had a wrong view of what is good. He was judging on the horizontal plane, and he needed to judge vertical. And Jesus tells him that nothing fleshly or earthly is good. Only God is good. He, only he can declare what is good, and that takes the man's thoughts to a higher level, to a, a higher question where there's a better answer coming. Do we not have the same trouble at times? We tend to define what good is, or at least we want to. We want to define what is good and what isn't. And even as obedient, as studious, as prayerful, and as discerning as we might be, our flesh is still compromised. Their sin still resides in my flesh. Only God can declare what is good, and his word has declared it. So the young ruler is curious about heaven and eternal life and how to attain it. Jesus answers with this question designed to raise his awareness above the horizontal plane of earth and flesh to a spiritual thoughts of heaven and life. He points him higher to God, to consider God. And then he turns to the Ten Commandments. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your mother, and, or honor your father and your mother. Why does Jesus tell him the law? Why does he point him to the Ten Commandments? To show the young man that he falls short. Kid's stubborn, though. You can see that in here. Comes back with a quick answer. Maybe when he missed what Jesus said that only God is good. Maybe he expected a higher, more thoughtful answer. You know, young people do that too, don't they? They like to argue sometimes on some ethereal plane when a lot of times the answer is really quite simple. It doesn't have to be very complicated. The young man replies that he's obeyed the law since he was a youth. Immediately responds, I've obeyed all that law. Really? Perfectly? You've never sinned? Go back to Psalm 131. Kid's already blown the first part of the verse. The first verse. He's proud. He's proud of his goodness. He's got haughty eyes. He thinks more of himself than he should. He's wrestling with matters of great thought here. He's trying to figure out this great thought to justify himself. Somewhere in here, maybe there's an answer that really the answer is quite simple. And it can only be received as a child. And yet think about it. He tells Jesus, he's been obeying the law. Well, if that's true, then why did you ask the question to begin with? Why did you ask the question, if you've been obeying the law, why do you ask the question, how do I obtain eternal life? He reveals a little bit about what is, he's thinking because apparently his pride of sticking to the law was not giving him any confidence that he was going to heaven or has eternal life. And that's because the law isn't there to justify us. It's there, us to, show, it's there to show us our sin. 
And although he affirms his obedience, his conscience is telling us that he really, his, his conscience is telling him that he really hasn't kept the law. He's in trouble. He's fooling himself. Been fooling himself, young man, for a long time. Let's go back to what our thoughts, or our thoughts of what is good for a moment. Why do people think they're good? Why are we so impressed with ourselves? It's because we have a wrong view of goodness too. People tend to look at morality as goodness. Look at the Ten Commandments that Jesus quoted. He only quoted five. Those five are called the moral laws of the, old te- of the Ten Commandments. And what happens to us, it's just human nature, we think if we don't lie, we don't cheat, steal, or murder anyone, we must be a good person. At least better than somebody else that does those things. Must be good. That we'll experience peace and joy in our life, and that should be enough for us to go to heaven. We tend to rationalize those things. And that's what this young man used as a measure of his goodness, his morality. And yet true peace and joy had escaped him. Living a moral life doesn't bring true salvation. There's more to it than that. Notice Jesus didn't accuse the man of disobeying the law. When the man said, I've obeyed it since youth, Jesus didn't argue with him. By doing so, probably would have shut him down. Jesus never accused him. Instead, here's what he says, verse 22. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus told the young ruler the message that I was talking about in Luke chapters 10 to 19. Jesus, in those 10 chapters, constantly says, you need to give it up. You need to give it all up. All that this dependence on what this life has to offer, your personal wants and desires, Matthew 9, 23, deny yourself. You need to give it all up. You need to sell it all, and you need to come and follow me. And I'm going to tell you, as I've studied those 10 chapters for probably the last five years, Off and on. The words of those 10 chapters, they still at times cause me dread. And as a pastor, those 10 chapters, they have me concerned for all of us. We've heard the Lord's commandments so many times. How many times have you heard? You need to give it all up and follow Christ. Every time we read these scriptures, you need to give it up and follow Christ. And none of us are without excuse. And yet the question is, are we obeying this command? Are we obeying? You know, I've heard many pastors and teachers say these words. The point of the lesson is not about possessing wealth. You ever heard a pastor say that or a teacher? It's not about possessing wealth. It's not about how much money you have or how much you make. The point of the, mess, of the lesson is to follow Jesus. And I cringe every time I hear that. Do you know why? Because it's garbage. 
It's garbage. Of course it's about money. Of course it's about giving up your wealth. Jesus didn't tell this kid to sell all his possessions and then go back on it and say, well, sorry, kid, not really. I'm just trying to make a point here. That's not what he's saying. Jesus didn't tell him so that pastors can minimize minimize it or speak around it or emphasize only what Jesus is trying to the point and ignore everything else there. He said to sell your possessions by taking care of the poor and come follow him. And we do that by learning his commands and obeying them and loving him. One might say, well, is it reasonable to do that? Is it reasonable for me to do that? That is such a great sacrifice. Is it really? Is it really? If you have faith, is it really that difficult to, to rid ourselves of wealth? Is there a way in this text that maybe we can make it easier on ourselves? The answer is yes. And Jesus tells, how to, tells us how to do that in these verses. Look at verse 22. Let me ask you this. What does Jesus offer in verse 22 to motivate us to shed our earthly wealth and to follow him completely? What is he offering? Somebody say it. Treasures in heaven. A treasure in heaven. Huh. Do you think that's worth something? Do you think it's worth everything? Is it worth it to give up your wealth here on earth and live forever than it is to wallow in our present wealth for a few years and die? That's the question he's asking. That's the question. That's what he said to the rich young ruler. Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not, Jesus said here, again, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The point Jesus is making here is is that as humans, we need to redefine what wealth is. We need to think about our wealth differently. In fact, we need to ask ourselves, what is real wealth? What's real treasure? And if you're a Christian, you should be able to answer, Jesus is our real treasure. Life in him is treasure. Life with him is treasure. It's real treasure. He is worth giving up everything, and only in Christ are we going to be truly satisfied. We'll actually be different than what's the rich young ruler because we have real treasure that fills and consumes us. Only in Christ are we going to find real, lasting joy, peace, and life. This young ruler, he was filthy rich, and he still wasn't satisfied. He saw himself as good and moral, but had no peace, 
no joy. He's miserable. He had everything he could ever want, and his life was empty. His conscience gnawed for what he did not have. He did not have Christ. Alexander McLaren was a Scottish pastor. Love reading him. Here's what he said. He said, there are multitudes in our churches who would be far nearer Christ than they are ever likely to be if they would literally obey the injunction to get rid of their wealth. That's a major commitment. And that's a hard truth. But it's true. And Jesus has said it over and over. So let's draw a comparison here. Do you think there's a correlation in Luke placing the story of children and the story of the ruler right next to each other? I think there is. I think he did have a, there is a correlation here. Because think about it, the the young ruler, a teenager, again, life is before him, He's he's about building wealth, he aspires to be older, he aspires to manage and maintain the wealth that he already has to make investments and to grow it. And yet this other story, children, even infants, couldn't care less about growing or keeping wealth. Mom is their only treasure, or dad is the only treasure. The only one, those two, the only ones who can bring them what they need at any time when they need it. The only one who can provide comfort and joy at the moment that they need it. Those are the two options. Our wealth gives us a false sense of comfort and security. It gives us a sense of self-sufficiency. I don't need to have as much faith because I've got my wealth. I don't have to trust that God's going to provide all my needs because I got this. If I give it up, guess what happens? I got to trust God more. I got to draw closer to him. I got to become more dependent on him. That's what Jesus is getting at. Our wealth draws us away from Christ and a total dependency on him. Shedding our wealth, as insane as that sounds, actually brings us to a very real understanding of our very real spectacular need. And it draws us into a deeper and closer, more worship-filled relationship with Jesus. A man or a woman who has shed all that they have for Christ and follows Jesus wherever he leads has found real joy. And he's found life, eternal life. Well, look what happens to the rich young ruler. Verses 23 to 24. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He couldn't do it. He couldn't give it up. He had to maintain control. This man, the tragedy of this man is he came face to face with the treasure of Jesus and he turns head down and walks away. He still had his wealth, but he's spiritually and eternally bankrupt. It's a tough application. How many in this room, I alluded to it earlier, how many in this room 
have been told the same thing over and over by the Holy Spirit. Give up your wealth by giving to the poor, by helping the poor, and follow Christ. And yet we've rejected the command only to come back to church and hear it again in a cycle. And personally, I have no idea how many in this room have struggled with that or watching online. I have no idea. I can't see your heart. And even more, I'm dealing with my own wandering heart. I'm dealing with my own issues with that, of sacrificing and obeying Christ. We can all be great actors. Warm and loving the outside, cold resentful on the inside. Oh, how I would, oh, how we would all hear and receive the word of the Lord, respond, and to truly become satisfied in Christ as our treasure. Fully engulfed in the knowledge of knowing Christ. Let's move on to the reaction of the crowd because this is pretty stunning. And I said, we're almost done. Verse 26, those who, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, the crowd here that's watching this interaction with Jesus and the young ruler, they're stunned. And maybe they're even a little bit of fearful here. Why fearful? Because they looked up to this rich young ruler. He was an icon in the community. He's got all this potential and all this capacity and everything else, and people are looking up to this young man. Maybe some of them were dependent on him. Maybe they worked for his father. Maybe they worked for him. Maybe they were part of his entourage. Obviously, he's well-known. Many may have very likely shared his ideas of what it means to be good. This young man was well-liked and well-respected. If he can't be saved, then how can anybody be saved? That's what the, the crowd is reacting in this way. And again, the answer points to only God is good. Only he has the power to do good, and he is willing. We must look to him, again, like a child looks to his mother. The only treasure worthy to place our trust and our hope is in Christ. He is worthy. He is our treasure. Only he offers the sweetness that makes it easy to part with our earthly wealth so that we might gain an infinite wealth. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that, folks, is incredible wealth alone. Peace, rest, joy, salvation, and wealth are found only in Christ. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with everything every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You already have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the response of the crowd illustrates our opportunity to consider what we've seen and heard as we've studied God's word this morning. The crowd looked on. They saw the opportunity of the rich young ruler to come to Christ and be saved, and they saw him reject Jesus and walk away. And from the moment, this moment, in this passage, in just a few weeks, 
Jesus will willingly die on the cross and pay for the sins of the world. Three days later, God the Father raised his son from the dead and defeated death. And by choosing to confess our sin and to believe in a very much alive Jesus Christ, we will be saved and find new life in him. Folks, that is real treasure. If you've never made that choice, if you've never confessed your sin and trusted Jesus, we invite you to do that today. And we're willing to walk that road to salvation with you. Just find me after the service. Contact the the office. Pastor Tim is here. We'd love to meet with you and help you find Christ today. To help you find life, eternal life today. Last point. Peter then jumps in and declares the disciples' sacrifice. Verse 28, and Peter said, See, we've left our homes and followed you. It's true, the disciples had given up everything and followed Jesus. Not like the rich young ruler who held on, they gave it up. And yet consider the verses in Luke 18, 1 to 14, somewhere in there, the parable of Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that story, right? Jesus contrasts the false prayer of the Pharisee, which really was a public announcement of his self-proclaimed goodness and virtue, with the real prayer of the unrighteous tax collector who begs mercy from the Lord. Could Peter have been accused of being more like the Pharisee, of declaring his virtue here? Well, maybe so, but Jesus doesn't scold Peter here. He sticks to the issue at hand, and he teaches about the rewards in heaven. Verse 29, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. That's the promise of incredible wealth. Incredible inheritance. Reminds me of the widow in Mark 12. You remember the widow in Mark 12? She had two coins. She only had two bits. That's all she had. She couldn't tithe it. Can't tithe two coins. She had three choices. Give nothing. Give nothing. Give half. Or give it all. The only options she had were those three. And she traded her two bits in for a reward that was beyond measure, an infinite reward and treasure. So as we close, our application this morning is clear. Living a good and moral life doesn't bring joy and peace. If it did, the rich young ruler wouldn't have been so dissatisfied. He had it all, and yet he knew he was missing something. He did not have eternal life. He's concerned about the future, and whether he knew it or not, whether he actually believed it or not, hell stood before him. Eternity in hell stood before him, and he's on the path that leads there. That's the reality of his situation. 
Jesus says we must give it all up. Help the poor. By giving it up, we're, th- we're trusting our every, we're thrusting our everyday life onto him. Every need. Just like a child who's in desperate need of his father. The one who endures to the end. Like a child will be saved. And the question is, what does that mean for you today? Let's pray. Father, you have spoken your will into our hearts this morning. And we ask, Father, that you give us the faith and the power to obey and to receive a blessing that is beyond all measure. Christ is our highest treasure. And like Paul, help us to faithfully confess that we count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Knowing that it's not the sacrifice that you desire, but a heart that values Jesus and responds in loving obedience. Thank you, Lord, for how you love and you care for your children. In Jesus' name, amen.